Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Joe Biden and why the political class in the UK is obsessed with whether he's woke. And you ask us, is the just say no approach to another Scottish independence referendum sustainable? So two momentous things have happened in politics this week. Joe Biden has had his inauguration and the word woke is trending on politics Twitter. So these things are actually related. Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy describes Joe Biden in an interview with The Guardian as a woke guy. And Boris Johnson has been put on the spot by Sam Coates from, from Sky to answer whether or not he also believes that Joe Biden is a woke guy. And it sort of got me thinking about how sort of the level of uh, analysis of what uh, Number 10's relationship is going to be like with the new US administration <laughs> is sort of a little bit frustrating and, and rather poor. But it also speaks to a broader thing about people's kind of neuroses in UK politics at the moment the back and forth of whether the Conservative Party feels that it would benefit it to sort of engage with, with the culture wars. First of all, Stephen, what did you think of, of the way that the British political class reacted to Joe Biden's inauguration? I think it typifies what you might call like the flight from detail on the part of quite a large chunk of, of our political class, right? This is <laughs> it's like, very dramatic. Way to it. <laughs> it's like one of those things where like, a Conservative MP who will remain nameless, who, in terms of the thing this person explicitly believes, right, not just in terms of stuff they say, like, when it's electorally convenient, but in terms of the things they have rebelled over, right, they are, as with broadly 95% of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, 100% of the Labour Party, and basically almost everyone in the United Kingdom, right, their political aims are better served by having someone who is, you know, unambiguously pro-NATO, unambiguously anti-climate change, has, I mean, you know, has, you know, I was about to say has a, a more robust position on China than the EU and the UK. But given that the EU's position is, yeah, why not have a trade deal? And the UK's perspective is sure, we'll condemn this. But if MPs actually ask us to do anything which has consequences, that's a little bit gauche. <laughs> so it would be hard for, for Biden to be outflanked by either us or the EU on this. But this is an unambiguous upgrade for any of the things that basically anyone in Westminster purports to care about. But you then have kind of people going like, oh, well, I, I'm not sure about Biden. It's just like, well, it's like, well OK, which, which one of your own manifesto <laughs> objectives don't you like? And then what I thought was fascinating about the... there was So there's a moment after the 2015 general election debate in which the most Googled term was, what is austerity? I really think in a British political context, 
the word woke is kind of becoming like that for the centre-right. And indeed, in this case, for centre-left, because Lisa Nandy saw fit to use the, the word too, right? But it's a, a word that like most people do not know what it means. It's not a policy, right? It has no direct... Well, obviously, like the, the package of issues which it can relate to, which obviously are entirely movable feasts, depending on the politics of the person using it, do have a tangible relation to people's lives. But as a word, it doesn't have any tangible relation to that. And I, every time I see an MP, or every time I see an MP talk about it, or an MP talk about it, I just think, I just don't believe that anyone normal has a clue what you are talking about when you are either like fulminating out about or defending this term. I completely agree. I think it's one of those things that the ordinary, maybe floating voter or reader of newspapers that don't obsess over these issues probably would have absolutely no idea what it means. And it's not the kind of gotcha question that maybe people assume it might be, even though it it makes conservative politicians in particular very antsy. I mean, you just have to watch the panic in Boris Johnson's eyes when he tries to answer the question. But that doesn't really sort of speak to very much other than perhaps the push and pull going on in the Conservative Party about whether or not they want to engage with these these issues, mainly to make the Labour Party under Keir Starmer uncomfortable, you know, to, to sort of drive a wedge between him and his, his more left-wing supporters or the people in the Labour Party sort of activist base, or between him and his, and, and his and fellow Labour politicians, indeed. I remember when Liz Truss made that speech in, in December, the Equalities Minister talking about a number of things, but it was characterised as, as a war on, on woke because she was sort of saying that the equality debate had dominated too much of the conversation and, and how it had sort of dominated her school days, I think, and, and wasn't sort of useful. And that suggested that the, the party was trying to move in that direction. You occasionally get these sort of little injections of culture war, like Robert Jenrick talking about the statues recently but then of course there's also a reluctance as you can see in the panic in Boris Johnson's eyes to really sort of engage with any of the sort of actual stuff around it which is essentially an online gotcha debate you know and that's what happens you know if you dip your toe into the culture wars then you are going to be asked questions like that and you are going to panic because it's just something that is so difficult to negotiate without getting egg on your face and from the Labour Party's perspective, I'd refrain from using the term because, as we said, it's, it's sort of alienating because people don't really know what it means. But also because if you don't talk about those issues, then you don't look like the one who's obsessed with those issues. And perhaps your opponent looks like the ones who are more preoccupied with things that are essentially sort of distracting from what you're actually trying to talk about. In this case, the UK's sort of future relationship with the US. I have to confess that I couldn't bear to watch that clip of Boris Johnson asking that question. I think I got the gist from people tweeting about it, but I just thought I couldn't bear anything less on my Wednesday afternoon. Um, but I Self-care. think that, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think actually the bit that I do find interesting is actually more what it means for Labour than what it means for the Conservatives. I think that you're both right that it speaks to the broader question of conservative indecision about whether they want to engage with the culture wars or not. But also, given that this started with an interview with Lisa Nandy, I think it's particularly interesting because leaving aside the precise term woke for a minute, I think that the question of what Labour can and should be learning from the Democrats and Joe Biden's presidential victory is is pretty interesting. So to blow my own trumpet, I had the pleasure of 
interviewing Keir Starmer at the Fabian Society conference at the weekend and he gave a speech on foreign policy and his vision of of the UK and the world going forward. He was talking around these themes ahead of the inauguration and I asked him what Labour and he in particular are learning from Joe Biden and the Democrats or if they're learning anything and what kind of conversations they've been having and he said that they do speak regularly that Lisa and Andy in particular is in very close contact with Joe Biden's team that he spoke with President Obama over the summer about the, their sort of shared strategy and but really the, the most important things were that he he said the main lesson he's learning is is that you need to know your coalition but also that you need to frame your political arguments in terms of values and I think implicitly in less alienating or quote-unquote woke terms but I, I thought it was interesting because Jim Pickard in the Financial Times picked up on this and, and wrote a piece of analysis recently on what Labour is trying to learn from the Democrats. And in the FT's phrase, it was, you know, that they are trying to talk about values and community and so on and dial down the more divisive culture wars stuff, which from what I recall isn't exactly what Keir Starmer said at the Fabian Society but I think potentially that's the the angle that has been briefed from shadow cabinet conversations and so on whereas Lisa Nandy has said the opposite that Joe Biden is a woke guy I mean there are so many differences in our political cultures that maybe in some ways is not that helpful but it is quite interesting you know one of the first things that Joe Biden has done in his you know 24 hours as president has been signing an executive order to protect trans people from discrimination in the FT piece they do explicitly say you know avoiding you know culture wars issues like trans rights and Lisa and Andy made absolutely opposite argument that Joe Biden has stood up for trans rights It is just interesting that the perception here is that Joe Biden managed to make a unifying case and in order to win, he did literally have to peel off some Trump supporters. But that is interpreted as as them dialing down culture wars issues when actually throughout, you know, with some quite early comments from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they have sort of low-key incorporated support for trans rights into their campaigning trans people have been appointed to various cabinet positions and then there's this executive order the the tricky thing in the UK is that for Labour they already have a policy of supporting reforms of the Gender Recognition Act so making it easier for trans people to self-identify or to change their legal gender on their birth certificate um they kind of already have that policy But the idea is that you should just sort of avoid talking about it, which, as we saw in the leadership contest, is quite difficult because if you have a policy on an issue that is so controversial in the UK at the moment, you kind of don't have the you don't have the choice of whether you talk about it or not. And Labour has kind of avoided in as far as it can making the case for its own policy recently, I think. But that I don't think is sustainable. If you look to the US, there is a case to be made that even though it's very different in that the the people who are concerned about bathrooms in a US context are the most right-wing Republicans and Trump supporters, and it's different here. 
it does show that you can be sort of making that case. I think that's exactly what Lisa Nandy was saying. She's always been more prepared to take a line on these issues and make the case for those things. It's also just very strange to me that Boris Johnson would would struggle so much because in a way it is a question more for the Labour Party about how woke it wants to be seen or otherwise. It's clearly very confused about that at the moment, I think. So to me, I think the reason why the Sam Coates question was such a good one is I used to think, and indeed the piece on the NS website, which I go, look, people who are saying, oh, the problem here isn't the Labour Party's talk too much about this are completely wrong. Like these policies are just talkers for a variety of reasons. And like ultimately you, you can't avoid talking about it. The conversation happens to you one way or the other. I'm now less convinced than that's the case, partly because because the reason why I think the question is actually more acute for the Conservatives, and it speaks to not just the, is he woke, but like the generic article in the Telegraph, which if you haven't read it, congratulations, why would you? So the generic article makes two arguments, both of which I think are perfectly coherent, but they obviously can't coexist with one another. The first is basically, if a street is renamed, then it should go through planning commission. And then it's broadly like, but if it comes through it and people go, oh, actually, we would like to rename it then the Department for Local Government will say no. And you said, well, you kind of have to to have a position on like, you know, I mean, just to take, you know, the area around here where every other building is like named after a rich Quaker or, or, you know, Daniel Defoe or something. Like, you can make a perfectly coherent argument that the council should have to, you know, treat that like any other planning commission. And you can make a coherent argument you want central government to be the one which names roads, although considering that some would argue central government struggles with the responsibilities on its plate, I'm not convinced that they want more. But it's kind of weird to have both. But the really crucial thing about that is no one normal cares about that one way or the other. I mean, I struggled to care about it while I was talking about it. And I was talking about it. <laughs> on the kind of one culture war issue other than, and parking from it, than it is a bit weird that we continually say, like, oh, Brexit, a culture war issue. And it's just like, well, try and buy a Percy Pigs somewhere in Northern Ireland and then tell me this is a culture war issue. Or, you know, like, why don't you go visit some fishermen or an export-focused business in the West Mids and be like, hey, this is a culture war issue. No, it's an issue of trade policy. Is then all of the other culture war issues bisect the Conservative Party and and, and its other political aims, right? So that was what I thought the genius of the question, right, is then... The reason why Boris Johnson kind of panics like a rabbit in the headlights is currently the position of the Conservative Party is, correctly, we want to have a close relationship with Joe Biden. He's aligned with us on all of the big issues and challenges facing the world. But it's also, we want to maybe be open to the potential of being able to fight the next election on the idea that Keir Starmer is is ultra-woke. And so it's like, oh, is is woke bad? Is Biden good? I, I don't understand. Trans rights, I think, is sums up their problem. I do not believe that the party of Maria Miller and Crispin Blunt is going to open a plausible culture war with the party of Rosie Duffield and Laura Pidcock, right? It's just like, while liberation issues have always divided within political parties in the United Kingdom rather than between them, one of the major successes of the New Labour era is that is like that divide has, has gone from being something which broadly like maybe 10% of Conservative MPs would agree with left liberal propositions, to where 20-30% of Conservative MPs will agree with those propositions. And I just think that that's at the point where the second that someone goes, so woke or not, or so how do you feel about any of these issues, the government sort of dissolves into a kind of a like, well, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, because the story then immediately becomes, 
well, you're divided, aren't you? I mean, because the interesting thing about the trust speech is that there wasn't any new government policy in it, because what that speech was primarily about was her saying to the right of the party, you know that I'm one of you on economics, you know I'm a massive dry, but I'm also one of you on this stuff as well. It's solely positioning rather than something positioning within a party that's divided on an issue. And I guess this is why I still, I mean, obviously, you know, in many ways I'm returning to the scene of the crime and this was like my analysis about why I didn't think this was a fruitful line of attack under Jeremy Corbyn, which is that the reason why against someone who actually wasn't that culture warsy, they kind of lucked out in 2019 is because external events meant that Brexit forced the Labour Party to take a position it didn't want to. But I just don't see how that happens with any other cultural issues because, okay, yeah, they they struggle to pass anything consequential for other reasons, but they are the government. They are responsible for all of this stuff and they themselves are divided over it. And it's why I think that what the Biden reaction to show is that this cultural stuff is just not, it's just completely arid as well as being bad for the country. It's arid from a conservative electoral prospect position. Yeah, and actually there was a really interesting piece that Ben Walker, who is one of our um, data journalists, wrote um, a few months ago about whether or not sort of culture wars issues are a particular sort of electoral motivator in this country. And it was really interesting because he took a number of different subjects like gay rights and racial inequality and trans rights, and he sort of mapped voting intentions onto people's sort of sentiments towards these issues both in the US and the UK and you can just see in the UK that these are not the wedge issues that perhaps some politicians think they are and so his sort of conclusion from crunching the numbers that is that you know there's not really that much to be gained by using this as a divider between you and your political party opponents and like you say Stephen the danger is that it it merely exacerbates the tensions and the divisions within your own party on these issues which is probably another explanation for why Boris Johnson panicked when he was asked about whether or not Joe Biden was woke, because not only do they not know what they're supposed to feel about it, but they also know that, you know, it could potentially backfire as well, whatever they say on on subjects like this. So, yeah, I recommend our listeners read that piece because it is really interesting. And it also just makes the very simple point that even mentions of the word culture war just massively soared when Donald Trump was elected. And so you can kind of see it's a maybe an America-led thing. And as Alva made the point very well, you can't always map the dividing lines and the contours of American politics onto British politics. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
So now it's time for a question we like to call. You ask, you ask us. us. So the question today is, do you think that just say no approach to another Scottish independence referendum is sustainable in the lifetime of this parliament? I think this is the most interesting question in politics at the moment. And gonna, yeah, I'm just going to say it in that I think this nods in particular to a piece that the former Chancellor George Osborne wrote in his column in the Evening Standard this week, which has got people talking, but also the broader question. So in his column, which I have to say is newsworthy every week, but people only read it for the first time this week. You know, he's been dropping truth bombs in that um, (laughs) for months, but basically word reached Northern Ireland that he thinks that given the Brexit arrangements that the union is doomed from a Northern Irish perspective and that the North is just on a path towards Irish reunification now because of Brexit arrangements and its ever closer union mm-hmm. with the European Union and, and Dublin. He also kind of implies that he doesn't think the Welsh question is terribly important or interesting. The main issue is Scotland. So he offended quite a few people quite quickly before he even really got onto the to the meat of the question, which is the very live possibility of Scottish independence in the next few years and it's a quite quite kind of fascinating circular argument in that he kind of begins by saying that you can't just bury your head in the sand and deny a referendum and think that the problem will go away and he works through his thinking and ends by urging Boris Johnson not to grant a Scottish independence referendum if the SNP win a majority in the Scottish parliamentary elections. So he comes full circle. And I think that the only plausible explanation for that strange circularity is that it is a genuine reflection of his thought processes. And there's a very obvious subtext, which he never really acknowledges in the piece, which is that he is learning from the mistakes of Brexit. He didn't want David Cameron to call a Brexit referendum he made that clear but publicly supported it they didn't want Brexit to happen so in hindsight he thinks why did we have a referendum that we didn't want to have and you can see how profoundly influenced he is by that and I I just think it is fascinating because you can look at it two ways if you are a conservative politician or indeed any politician who doesn't want to preside over the breakup of the United Kingdom who doesn't want to have a sort of Lord North moment as George Osborne puts it then the surefire way of making sure that that is not your political responsibility is to deny the referendum but on the other hand how do you ensure that you're not just stoking those tensions and putting off the inevitable and making it all the more inevitable by denying people a vote on it and allowing those tensions to fester rather than making the positive case for the union and can you make the positive case for the union while in some senses making a quite negative case for the union by not allowing Scottish people to have a referendum I instinctively think that Stephen and I disagree on this in that I think were I a conservative politician I would not hold a second Scottish independence referendum. I don't mean as me with my own politics, but if I were in Boris Johnson's shoes with his political aims. But I I see the longer term argument of really how you're putting off a problem to another day and, and making it worse. Am I right, Stephen, that that would be your instinct? 
Yeah, I mean, so I'm I'm quite suspicious of my analysis on this one because so I I, I very viscerally feel right that if a majority of people in you know. And yeah, it can be a nation state. It can be, you know, if a majority of people in Hackney vote for like the Hackney Independence Party, as ludicrous a proposition as I believe that to be, I think like the appropriate response from central government is to go, we're going to have a referendum on this then. Now, the difference with Brexit, of course, is, is that precipitating event never happened. And the reason to hold it was because otherwise the Conservatives would probably not have been re-elected and David Cameron might have faced more internal opposition than he did and that is not in my view a sufficiently good reason to hold it although I still think the only way to prevent Brexit happening would have been for the Conservatives to lose in 2015 and then probably never to win a majority again which just seems a bit unlikely given they are the most successful political party in in the United Kingdom by, by some distance but my instinct is I just think it's wrong I just think that if if you have a majority of people voting for pro-succession parties I, and I think that's actually more important than the SNP win a majority because De Hunt could throw up all sorts of weird scenarios where they where you have a plurality voting for for parties that don't want a referendum that do want a referendum and a majority voting for ones that don't but it, it shakes out weirdly but but in the overwhelmingly likely event that more than 50 percent of a country or indeed any year have gone like yeah we'd like to reopen this question I just emotionally and ideologically feel the correct response is for central government to reopen it. So I'm certainly worried that my strategic analysis of whether or not that's the right thing to do is is heavily influenced by my ideological prior, which is that I love Edinburgh. It's a wonderful city. uh, But one of my my favourite things, actually, is, is the dynamic earth. It's like one of those science exhibits for kids where it's basically a bit like a fairground ride. But dynamic earth, I think, actually sums up why the Conservatives... So if you believe the referendum can be won, and I don't think anything in politics is is inevitable, if you believe the referendum can be won, then it's a different question to if you do you believe a referendum can be lost. And the only question is, can you, Boris Johnson, avoid, as someone close to Downing Street said to me, we're not going to effing let the SNP do to us what we did to David Cameron? If you basically think that, like there's this bomb that's going to go off at some point, right? At some point, there's going to be another vote and Scotland's going to vote, vote for independence. Do you basically just go, well, that can be the problem of whoever it is ends up having to rely on SNP votes to govern next time there's a hung parliament. That's like the, this, someone's got to like eat this bucket of, of feces, but it ain't going to be me. <laughs> Option two is actually the bucket doesn't have to be eaten. And, and I think that is true. I, I, yes, I don't think anything in politics is inevitable. But the reason why I reference Dynamic Earth is at the start of Dynamic Earth, right, you go down and it's like this cool, like, animatronic thing and this voiceover comes and there's this ice and this wind that they blow over you and they go, 10,000 years ago, Scotland was covered in ice. And it's like, Scotland was covered in ice? I, I, don't, I don't think that there was a thing called, I don't think there was a thing called the United Kingdom. I think it was actually still attached to the European continent at the time. But, you know. Sorry, not 10,000 years ago. Yeah, 100,000 years ago, Scotland was covered in ice. And so, like, but I know that this sounds like sounds like a, a joke, but it's a 100% serious proposition, right? Which is politics is downstream from culture. If you want to keep the United Kingdom together, right, you need to do two things. You need to be able to defeat the SNP at the ballot box and do so repeatedly. And you need to be able to turn the kind of cultural tide of, yeah, a thousand centuries ago, Scotland was covered in ice. Um, well, no, it wasn't. Like, that's... that's that's not true. Like that is that is an attempt to like create and to deepen uh, a culture of separation where none existed. Again, for very obvious paleontologic reasons. <laughs> and I just think if you if you do want to keep the union together, right, 
every year that you are not having a referendum is another year in which like another young Scottish person who has only ever lived in a situation in which a thousand centuries ago Scotland was covered in ice is the kind of cultural backdrop of how they talk about nation. Well, of, of course, you're going to lose that referendum, right? Unless you actually fight it as soon as you possibly can. And then, you know, work out the much more difficult question of how is you you defeat the SNP. And that's why I just think if I were lying awake at night going, oh, God, how do we prevent Scottish independence? I just I just cannot fathom the argument that waiting doesn't make the problem worse. That's before you get onto the, you know, and I do think for the same reason, I, I think it would have been a bit dangerous if, if, if we hadn't done Brexit. I do think the risk is always that you move politics away from, from the ballot box if you don't allow elections to have effect. I think there is a there are, are also those downside risks, which I, to be honest, do care a lot more about. I'm instinctively also opposed to further splitting off and, and the erection of further borders, the inevitable consequence of, of any national separation. But the right to self-determination, you do you, really. Like, But I just think if I were a Conservative and I actually cared about protecting this union, or indeed if I were a Labour person and I cared about this union, my position would be, we've got to fight this as soon as as we can because this idea you know some people have oh you know when brexit has has faded away as an issue and it's just like mate like we're going to be arguing about brexit until the sun expands until we're once again all covered in ice it ain't going to happen in terms of the question i think it is probably sustainable in this parliament mm. i just think it's a bad idea yeah i mean i i really get get the sort of fundamental truth of what you're saying which is sort of the more it's delayed and sort of the more stubborn a Tory government that you have in Westminster ultimately the better for the SNP right it's kind of part of their identity now that's something that's attractive to voters beyond all the arguments about independence which is we're the ones sticking up for you we're the sort of plucky fighters who are always sticking it to Westminster and and every time they they do something that that's perceived as against their interests or or is seen as a snub or is seen as patronising, then that just helps your your cause. And so the more that you hold out against granting this referendum, the more, you know, that helps that that image and that kind of tone of, of the debate. And, and that's all to the benefit of the SNP. But I think really the clue to this is is the first paragraph of that of that column that Alva mentioned by George Osborne, which is he describes this sort of tense evening with David Cameron when they're waiting for the Scottish referendum result to come in in 2014, having a curry and his the thought running through his head, which he, he admits is, are we the people who have lost Scotland? When he says, are we the people? I don't think he means the Conservative Party in the long term or, or as, a, as a sort of political entity. I think he means am I going to be part of the administration that oversees the splintering of the union? And and ultimately, that is how politicians in power think, you know. So if you're going to, like you say, you know, it may be the most sensible thing to do for the future of the union to grant that referendum sooner rather than later. But are you going to want to be the individual who does it and risks being the one who is who's going to have to resign the next day after Scotland votes to leave. And, you know, for someone like Boris Johnson, who, you know, very much values his sort of political persona and his reputation and, and probably his legacy, he won't want to be the one to do that. So I suppose the political reality gets in the way, particularly if they are trying to take lessons from Brexit, no matter what side they were on. I mean, I think that we, we have the same ideological priors on this in that if a group of people 
indicate electorally that they want independence, that they should be given the the right to have a referendum on it, that, that there should be a referendum on it. But I think that especially if I were, if I were a conservative making this argument, I think that you could add a bit of nuance to that in the clearly in a in a straight up down poll of whether people would would like to be independent or not in Scotland a clear majority are saying yes I think that the desire for a referendum right now is a different thing and I'm not sure what the polling indicates on that whether people do want one immediately then flowing on from that a majority voting for the SNP is that an indication of wanting a referendum on this issue immediately if that is one of the things that they are standing on. Firstly, it would you know, have to be an outright majority by every measure, otherwise you could be kind of quibbling over it. But given that parties stand on more than one issue, mm-hmm. even though the SNP are very explicit about wanting a referendum and a referendum soon, I am actually not convinced that the need to have a referendum immediately is as inevitable as it has been like set up to seem in the so for example Northern Ireland at the 2019 general election returned more nationalist MPs than unionist MPs but we don't interpret that as an indication that there needs to be a referendum immediately also if you look at the Northern Ireland Assembly it kind of depends on where you would place the Northern Irish Green Party but I mean, they issue tribal labels, but I think it would probably be fair to say that if they had to come down on a side that they would lean more towards nationalist than unionist. So if you include the two Green Party members and exclude Alliance, who who also try to issue tribal labels, then it's a 50-50 split between nationalists and unionists. And I suppose, so I suppose you could argue that Northern Ireland is a very different case but there are situations and places where nationalist majorities as in the case of the Westminster election or there or you know roughly 50% of the electorate are returning nationalist politicians and that isn't interpreted as an immediate mandate for a referendum right now so I think that that, that complicates it slightly because they're the two different questions and I, I suppose like I'm just very influenced by being Northern Irish on this one that there's a sort of there's nationalism sometime and there's nationalism immediately and I accept that SNP the SNP are making the case for independence immediately so maybe that gives them more of a mandate to have a referendum right away but it isn't always interpreted that way because those parties represent more than the one position And I do think that given the precise context that we find ourselves in, there is a case to be made that this would be a bad time to have a referendum, just a a political case. You know, there's the immediate health and economic crisis of the pandemic to contend with, and that that would be a really disastrous divergence of energy and resources and political attention. It's funny because I share your ideological priors on this, that you should let people have votes on on the things they want to vote on but I but I just think I'm kind of fascinated by the political question of what the conservatives should want to do and I actually do think that the surefire way of avoiding 
a situation you, you don't want to see is to avoid having the vote. And you can actually make the case for that, that it can be a bit more complicated. And I think it's set up as inevitable because the SNP has made a strong political case that it would be inevitable if they won a majority. But I think that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be so. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.